This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. Okay, so joining me on the Becoming Educated podcast today is Neil Gilbride. Neil is a lecturer in education at the University of Gloucestershire, where he works on educational leadership and teacher development. As an adult developmental psychologist, his cutting-edge research looks at the role adult development plays in how leaders respond to their organisations and those within them. He regularly works across education and beyond, supporting organisations in leadership, management and education. He is an academic advisor to Ambition School Leadership, the Charter College of Teaching, St George's Widening Participation Programme and several other organisations within education and beyond the sphere of education. Neil's career over the past 14 years has spanned across a range of areas in education as a practitioner, academic and researcher. As a teacher and Teach First ambassador, he taught secondary science for five years. He has researched across a range of areas in education as a social worker, carer and specialist in special educational needs, counsellor, widening participation mentor and school governor. His academic background is diverse and he has worked across biomedical science, special educational needs, adult development psychology and educational leadership and policy. Neil, it's a privilege to have you on the Coming Educated podcast today. Oh, thank you. I, I'm really, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to talking about uh, whatever we talk about today. I mean, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's going awful. Oh my gosh, I'm like going red and everything. No, I've been to for ages, so I'm delighted and humbled um, to actually be talking with you today. Really, really hope I say something. What's the word? Uh, uh, coherent. I'm, I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm sure you will. We're going to be covering a, a quite, quite a range of topics. As a, as my introduction said, there's, you've had such a wide and varied career, so we're going to be nipping and tucking under a few. But to first to kick us off, just to, as we said, your career's certainly been diverse. Could you give us just a really quick whistle-stop tour of your career in your own words? Yeah, sure. So I suppose it all started when I was 16, and I started volunteering in holiday um, camps for children with profound and multiple disability. And that's when I started getting a taste for the inclusion side of my work that's kind of carried on since since I was 16. Um, when I was 18, I started my biomedical science degree, realized that maybe medicine's not my natural home. And I was always interested in kind of how people learn, development, taking any of the opportunity to study psychology, uh, I could. Um, and uh, my own journey of finding out I was dyslexic quite late on in life meant I was really interested in this special educational needs domain. Um, I started then going and volunteering with Karen Edge at the London Centre for Leadership and Learning Institute of Education. And that opened my eyes up to leadership, um, teaching more broadly. When I left my degree, finished my degree, I started working as a family support worker, which was the social work side of my role whilst doing my master's in psychology and education part-time. Um, I was volunteering Childline at that time, and I saw the advert for Teach First, and I just fell in love with it. Um, I'd been doing widening participation throughout this time, um, which involved going into schools and working with them and encouraging individuals to consider higher ed um, for their own career. And it just spoke to me. It just spoke to my values. It spoke to my own background as someone was first in family. Um, and I went for it and taught in South East London for a couple of years and taught in Swindon 
I'd always wanted to do my PhD, but never thought that opportunity would come up. And I met Chris James at Bath, and he introduced me to this world of adult ego development. And started my PhD, I changed direction, left my teaching job, doing some research in some schools, bringing up my children um, for a couple for a couple of years at home. And then I met Linda Kerr at the University of Gloucestershire, who offered me some teaching on the masters, and it all took off from there. That's when I got my lectureship and and scaling up my research from from there. And a lot of my roles are just transcended that time, whether it's being a school governor, working for Childline as a volunteer counsellor, um, having my teaching load very hev- heavily orientated towards special educational needs. Um, and that's been pretty much it. The last four years at Gloucestershire, it's been working on the MA in educational leadership across the master's programs and some other programs in the School of Education and Psychology and Business, but also with uh, developing the PGC secondary program as well, so entering into teacher development. And that's been the last 12 months. So that's pretty much, I think, uh, a whistle-stop tour, um, which has incorporated SEN, my passion for science, widening participation, leadership, both as having entered leadership roles whilst I was teaching as well, uh, and and getting involved in leadership research at quite an early age, at the age of 19, um, and I was volunteering at, uh, at the Institute of Education. So, yeah, that's pretty much, I think, the spectrum of my career to date. Thank really. you, Neil. Um, we're going to going to start looking into the, to your research into adult ego development. So, could you tell us a little bit about your research into adult ego development and how this influences leadership? Yeah, sure. So in the 1970s, Jane Lovinger, who's an American psychologist, researched the idea that we have a part of our psychological architecture that is making sense of ourselves in relation to our environment, called the ego. What she hypothesized was that that can move through stages as we go through adult life. It's not an innate trait that's fixed. It is a factor that grows and develops as we move through our adult life. Being psychologists, we like putting people into groups. Um, what she did was create groups that go along a sense of the uh, life lifespan of the adult um, in hierarchical stages, these stages of ego development. And they are focused on how people, their underlying principles for how they make sense of the world, how they interpret the role of people, the degree of complexity which they interpret from their environment, um, a range of factors. And so that this is this acts as the conduit to, to action. It doesn't predict what people will do, but it certainly provides a guiding frame for what people will do and how, particularly how they will approach the decisions they make. And as this leadership is about making decisions and influence, me, Chris James, and Sam Carr at the University of Bath, came up with this idea of studying how school leaders handle their organizations and what stage of development they reside in to see if there's any difference. So essentially looking to see if how they make sense of the world through their ego influences any substantive differences according to their stage group into how they interact with their organizations and those around them. This is particularly important in school leaders because not in, we don't sense make all the time when there's actually an easy solution or a flowchart to follow, we don't need to make sense of the situation, we can follow it. But schools aren't home to a lot of those sorts of problems. Schools are 
organizationally complex um, and they are full of these wicked problems um, which force individuals to make sense of the situation. So that was the working premise that if school leaders are in a position where they're having to make sense of situations in order to act, we would anticipate that there'd be substantive differences according to the stage of development, how they make sense of the world, and the consequent actions and how they go about their leadership and interaction with others. And that's what we found in, in our sample of, of school leaders. Um, we found that according to their stage of development, there were si significant differences um, according to their stage of development um, in terms of how they interact with people, in terms of the degree of complexity they see within their organization, what they do with the wicked problem, how they view emotions, the role of emotion and feelings within instant, and how others perceive them as a leader. You said mentioned there a few times the stages of development. Can you tell us a little bit about the different stages of development, please? Yeah, sure. So I'll focus on the three main adult ones. So there are st eight stages that um, cover the lifespan, but most adults will reside in one of the three. Um, the first one being self-aware stage. Um, this stage is a stage of development where they are starting to let go of the rules. So the rules are still a driving force in how they make sense of situation. What are the rules? What's the guiding framework? Those around them are playing an increasingly more helpful role. They're still very much focused on their own action um, and their own volition within incidents. Um, their growing sense of complexity but still focusing on the incident in a, this is A plus B equals C. So this happened and this happened, this is what we've got to do. When we then move to the conscientious stage, which is where most adults reside, it's pretty close to the self-aware and conscientious stage, but conscientious stage is where most adults will find themselves residing in terms of their development. We see an intense responsibility to those around them. So they are very much focused on what others need and how they can give to those individuals. The, what guides their behavior isn't so much the rules, it's actually their own internal standards. So what I feel my values are, that's what guides what I do, what I choose to do, and how I go about doing it. There's an increasing role of others in the decision-making process, but it's still within them. Um, and it, again, increase an increasing degree of complexity if we ask them to describe a situation. The individualist, um, which is what we call post-conscientious stages, um, probably takes up around 10 to 15% of any given population. And what we see here is they, the best way to describe this in one word is integrated. So those in the individualist stage and beyond uh, recognize that there's sometimes a difference between what they need, want, feel is right, versus what's the external world wants and needs and feel is right and their job is to try and strike a balance between the two so it isn't what are the rules what does Ofsted book say it isn't what do I feel is right it's how do I manage the tensions between the two an increasingly developmental focus on on individuals around them so interested in their self-actualization their growth and a wider degree of complexity again. So at this stage, it's where the world is an ambiguous place. We recognize gray. Um, we're comfortable and can tolerate ambiguity. Up to this point in the earlier stages, the idea of the world being a relatively unpredictable place is one which 
those in other stages will manage. They'll either manage it through seeing the world in quite a linear way, or as we see in the conscientious stage, it's um, as the selection of variables. Whilst there's a recognition of wider complexity, there's a focus on specific variables. Um, whereas in the individual stage, there's a tolerance for allowing that to emerge, for new ideas to emerge out of it. Um, and what we saw in the research was a lot of those trends echoed, including extensions of those trends that we see particularly in school managers and leaders and the situations that they find themselves in. Okay, so how does how does that then, sorry, what are the implications to then get CPD right for leaders depending on what stage of development they are? So, so what this is suggesting is that leadership if we want, if we accept the premise that in order to handle wider organizational complexity and wicked problems, there are factors that we ask leaders to engage with day to day and ways of working that we ask them to engage in day to day that are extremely hard for an adult to do. Okay. So, for example, we found that it's only at the individualist stage where leaders can engage in what we call genuine collaboration. So when I say genuine collaboration, I mean the genuine mutual exchange of ideas, building ideas with those around them. Before that, we see either collaboration for validation, which is, here's my great idea, what do you think? Which isn't collaboration, that's validation. Or, here's my idea, let's go. It's only at the individualist stage, which is both within the adult ego development literature but also in our data with school leaders that this genuine collaboration this co-construction of mutual developmental accord um, actually begins to, to surface as a main working way of handling complexity and wicked problems yet if we look at a whole host of leadership theory or indeed any leadership book what do they say collaboration 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 so it's assumed that you can just collaborate what our data is saying is that that's actually really, really hard. It's not, I don't want to say that it's impossible and therefore we shouldn't strive for it. What I'm saying is, is that actually the skill of collaboration is linked to the stage of adult development that's relatively rare, rare in the adult population. And we need to acknowledge that it's really hard to do. We can't just put it on a list of traits or behaviors and go, go collaborate. We have to recognize that it's really hard and that's going to need structures for people to collaborate. It's going to need developmental support for people to collaborate. It's going to need to require some fundamental shifts in growth, how people make sense of the world. Not just giving a list of how to collaborate, but actually recognizing that there needs to be a fundamental shift in the psychological architecture for individuals to collaborate as part of their modus operandi. And it's the same across a range of different features, like recognizing emotion and feelings and how people make decisions. Again, this is something we only really began to saw in the individual stage. So asking leaders to be genuinely empathetic to the emotional needs of their staff, by, by virtue of asking that of leaders, we are also implicitly saying advance your adult development. You know, like we're also saying you, you need to, to have developed to quite a sophisticated adult developmental level. And so we're placing implicit demands on school leaders that we just give us day to day, but actually are far harder than we give credit for. So in terms of CPD, we need to be thinking about CPD in a different way. 
just asking collaboration, setting some rules for collaboration or telling people about emotion is going to be one part of it, but it's not going to be enough if we want it to be embedded in the day-to-day working ways of a school leader or indeed any school or any individual working in a school. We need to embrace adult developmental models for that development to occur. So what does that look like? Um, for example, disruptive experiences. So putting individuals in experiences that make people to fundamentally rethink how they appreciate problems. That's key. That could be both within school, but also outside. We know disruptive experiences can occur across the adulthood spectrum. That could be uh, the birth of a baby. Birth of a baby can lead to disruptive experiences, which in turn actually make us view the world in a different way. You know, um, it could be going to work in another school for six months. Completely different, completely different off the chart scale, completely different. That forces, again, an adult to go, whoa, I need to rethink here. And to provide the developmental coaching and support for that process, which can be quite scary and anxiety-inducing, to actually be a supportive developmental one. So it's thinking about the structures around development and the sort of experiences that can facilitate that. One that I'm really interested in is actually the role of knowledge. I think knowledge can be can be incredibly disruptive, um, and actually provided a and one that the adult development literature I don't think talks enough about. It's actually the role of knowledge in providing disruption. So in our MA in educational leadership, we do a lot of work on complexity theory, and the reason that I like teaching about complexity theory is because it it provides a very concrete way of viewing how worlds and organizations operate in a fundamentally different way. Once you understand the mechanisms of complexity theory, you just don't see the organization the same way again. You can't. It just provides a, it provides a set of glasses, a lenses, if you will, for viewing organizations. And so consequently, I think, could act as a potential bridge for an, an adult to fundamentally question how they make sense of the world around them and therefore advance an individual stage of development. So I think disrupting experiences, developmental coaching, particularly focused within the adult developmental sphere, but I think we need to do a lot of work in terms of the types of disruptive knowledge that we can give school leaders and uh, leaders in general that actually shake up and act as a bridge for shaking up how people make sense of the world around them. So we're going to come back to this uh, the idea of knowledge. So hold on to that. We're going to going to revisit that. But before we do, um, just something that's coming in coming into my head just now. You've talked about that three areas of of adult development. Could you could you tell me how do we get to there at certain times? Does everyone get there at the same time, or is it spread across the, our, our lifespan? Or do, and also, do do some people never get to the individualist stage that you were talking about? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So it's we don't. So we don't talk about age because there isn't there isn't a necessarily relationship between age and stage. Um, we we don't always. In fact, most adults do not get to the individualist stage. Most will reside within the self-aware and conscientious stages of development. It's a whole host of reasons for that. Do we reward development beyond the individualist? I mean, for example, if you were to pick up any uh, leadership book in the airport. It would reward the person who threw the rule book out the work, the window and went their way, you know, this heroic leader. And people buy those books, we reward that book, we reward that sort of charismatic approach and kind of values 
self-values driven approach within leadership but in terms of adult development that's relatively run of the mill that's relatively straightforward what's harder in terms of adult development is actually managing tensions between what we want to do and what we feel is right and what we need to do according to our external environment being able to bring the two together to come to a much more complex position um so there's there's that there's that is there the cultural reward for actually thinking in a more complex way is there the tools the knowledge the research that supports individuals to move into what we consider to be later stages of adult development is there a degree of innateness to it there's all sorts of questions around it but no it's definitely not a guarantee that adults will transcend to those later stages most reside within the self-aware and conscientious stage of development um, and in terms of in terms of how we get there I mean you could get you could have an individual who has been doing the same job for 30 years, hasn't necessarily gained more experiences um, or had a lot of those disruptive experiences that can promote development and be residing in the self-aware stage. But you could get a 25-year-old who has been through so much in their life already, both professional but also personal, because you know adult development is a broad overview. It's not just promoted by what you do for work. It's promoted what you do within your life that could be working at an individualist stage of development because they've had both fortunate and unfortunate disruptive experiences throughout their lifespan, which has promoted their development. Okay, so how much then does, so if we're thinking, so I'll rephrase that. If we're thinking about, about kind of leadership and, and, the, and the role of, of leaders, their jobs yeah. are quite filled with pressure and stress. So how much does pressure, how much does pressure and stress play a role in our development? I think yeah, that's such a good question to ask. I think this is a really important question because this is the thing with adult development. This is why this is really important. I think this is a really important um, set of theories and knowledge to understand in terms of leadership because it helps us to understand performance. Um, it helps recognises that we do not act upon our environment and environment does not act upon us in silo. We actually operate as a dynamic. So our behavior is a consequence of both ourselves in relation to our environment. It's the same with any psychological trait. You change the environment, the expression of that changes. And I think what we don't recognize with stress, when this is a, this is a developmental feature of our psychological architecture. So what happens when we have stress is we find those features compromised, right? So if we think about memory, if we are trying to remember something and we're stressed, we're less likely to remember it. Right? I don't think that's controversial. I think we can all recognize that. If we're saying that sense-making impacts on leadership, we then have to think about, well, what happens if we put sense-making under stress? People temporarily regress, right? So they start operating at those earlier stages of development in a temporary way. We can all probably recount times in our professional and personal life when we've been under stress and a few months later we've looked at the decision we've made and gone what how why why did i do that what that was that was that was that was such a poor decision why did i do that i completely discounted this factor this factor this factor because sense making our ego is it sits between the boundary to ourselves and our environment if we're under stress like any other psychological construct it 
forms of temporary regression. And so we, if we're on, let's say we're in this individualist stage, we're able to manage the tension between ourselves and our environment. Yeah, unless we're stressed, because then that becomes compromised. So what happens? We then fall, we either start looking for the rules or we start looking toward ourselves and our own values, or we just become quite impulsive. The potential for temporary regression is definitely there. And that's a response to stress and pressure. And that's, I think, absolutely critical in terms of what we're providing is we've always, I think, known that decisions we make is impacted by stress. But the thing with ego is it provides the mechanism for explaining that. It provides the psychological construct that can actually explain why our decision making is fundamentally different under stress. And bearing in mind that that will be different for other people will experience stress differently. Um, the same amount of stress for one person is different for another. Um, but that can come to compromise our sense making. It's our sense making which acts as the bridge to action. And so this is why we can finally start to say this is why actually well-being is really important. It isn't just because um, we're, to, to make us not feel unwell, which is a very important part of well-being, absolutely. But the other part of it is actually if we want individuals to operate at their optimum state of sense-making of ego development then they need to be in a safe secure environment if they're not they'll regress and so we can have and this is where people say oh should we should have individualists then let's score everyone according to their ego and only hire individualists i say absolutely not that's not the point here one we should be looking at development because this is a developmental trajectory it can move it can shift but critically you can have an organization full of individualists, but if you put them under stress and pressure and strain, they will not make sense of the world like individualists. You won't get that out of them. And so this has all sorts of reflections for when maybe an appointment hasn't gone to plan. You know, we've appointed someone thought they were great, it hasn't gone to plan. Um, or we've appointed someone where it hasn't gone to plan before and suddenly they're thriving makes us rethink it's ironic that a trait such as psycho psychological sense making ego development can make us rethink how we view the context because this whole idea of sense making it occurs between ourselves and our environment so we have to look at both not just the person but the context as well thank you so much that was so fascinating so fascinating to, to listen to you explain all that so thank you very much we're not going to move on to what you mentioned knowledge because in a blog post on your website you write that Great theory and knowledge is powerful in leadership. So how can powerful knowledge transform a leader's approach to leadership? I think for, for, for several reasons. The first one is, I've, as I've already discussed, I think knowledge, powerful knowledge, can act as a disruptive force in our schema. And that disruption... I think can go on to lead to fundamental shifts in our adult development. That's a working hypothesis for me. I'm working on something on, on around this. What if actually knowing something fundamentally affects how we go about constructing our understanding of the world? Complexity theory for them, if for example, is one of them. Um, your knowledge of how people develop and grow. What if that's disruptive for you? If that disrupts how you view people. That therefore disrupts how you develop them. That's the, therefore disrupting their influence. So there's the role of knowledge as acting as a bridge 
to understanding the inherent complexities of the world, which in turn influences how you make sense of the world and therefore how you act within it. And I think that for me is the big point of knowledge. I think we think of knowledge in quite technical. How do we do things? How do we get a better output? We don't think about knowledge in terms of how we get a better process as well. I think that's the other part of knowledge is it helps us to rethink about process, not just outcome. I think a lot of educational leadership has become almost school improvement. And that is a noble aim of the educational leadership literature, absolutely is, but it can't be that all. You know, it, we need to have good knowledge, and we know this as teachers. You know, what do we teach if we don't know? We don't have good knowledge in science. For example, the cell. We know, have good knowledge on the cell. We can teach about the cell. So consequently, people can can gain an understanding of of the basic fundamental part of mammalian life. I mean, deep plant life for that matter. What are those concepts in leadership? Have we thought about what those concepts are? Not just about running a good organization, but what are those transformative knowledge bases that helps us to influence an organization and the individuals within them? What are those disruptive, transformative groups, theories, ideas that make people reconsider and reshape? how they view people, how they view organizations, how they view teams, how they view themselves, which in turn acts as a conduit to a different set of processes and actions that they otherwise wouldn't have without that. So that brings me on smoothly on to, to my next question. And how would you then define this powerful knowledge that you speak about? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a really good question. I need to think about this. How would I define that powerful knowledge? It comes back to disruption. It comes back to disruption. What knowledge forces an individual to not just do something, to know something differently? So I suppose the best way of answering this is the difference between content and structure. Problems have content and they have structure. Organizational issues have content and structure. It isn't just the what, it's the how. It's the things around the problem. And this is what we say about with wicked problems. Wicked problems is a, a is a common structure that occurs in different content. So, for example, whether it's curriculum, whether it's teaching and learning, whether it's human resources, those content of those problems could be different, but the structure of them could be exactly the same. I suppose with knowledge, it's not so much about knowing content, although that's important. It's about how you influence the structure of people's thinking around the problem. So for example, example being wicked problems, if people look at their problems in a content way, just on the content, and don't have a mechanism for actually looking at the underlying structure, how do you develop common approaches? How do you develop common processes that would allow you to solve those problems in a way that recognizes inherent complexity? So we give them wicked problems as a framework. Wicked problems as a framework allows them to be able to classify problems as wicked or tame. Consequently, they can then look at problems across a range of different domains and go, oh, regardless of whether it's teaching, learning, curriculum, people development, actually these, these sorts of problems is this sort of approach, whereas these sorts of problems can be followed through a flowchart. Right, okay. So that disrupts how they work. 
And so, and that can be on a very individual level. You might get some people who have absolutely mastered complexity theory before arriving to you, in which case that process ceases to be disruptive. So the other part of it, in terms of what is this disruptive, powerful knowledge, is where that individual's coming from. You know, someone who's never met complexity theory, someone who's never met wicked problems, someone who's never met self-efficacy, that knowledge will be disruptive. Someone coming in who has been reading about complexity theory since the age of 12, this is no longer disruptive for them. So we need to also recognize the position of the learner. And that's what's different, particularly about adult learners compared to um, maybe learners coming into the national curriculum level, is that they might have done quite a lot of that professional learning already. And so we need to look at them as an individual, what they know already, and what's going to be disruptive for them compared to those around them. And that's both the challenge of anyone writing a curriculum for leaders um, and for organizations that try to, to set up to deliver that curriculum as well. You deliver, you're working in a higher degree of individuality than you might otherwise have if working in school or college level. Um, but there are there are always theories and ideas that you can interrupt to disrupt, introduce to disrupt how people do things and the process by which they do them, how they view the structure around the problem and the organization rather than the content. So then do you believe that we, we need knowledgeable leaders or why, or can you tell us why we need to develop knowledgeable leaders? I think the more tools, the more of those disruptive tools that a knowledgeable leader, that a leader can carry, the different lenses they can use to appreciate a problem. Appreciate a problem, not necessarily know the answer to the problem. And I think this is where there's been a lot of unnecessary binarisms about leaders knowing facts to answer problems. I don't think that is important. That's an important part of it. But there's also something else. It's that knowledge which allows them to view the problem in a fundamentally different way, the organization a fundamentally different way. Almost treating knowledge in that case like lenses, like glasses. You change the lenses, you change the view of the problem. You know, if you look at a problem through complexity theory, it'll look completely different than if you look at it through complex then through chaos theory, for example. If you're looking at problems through uh, psychological frameworks, you will view that problem in a fundamentally different way than if you're looking at it through sociological frameworks. So it's almost treating knowledge as heuristics, a way of thinking about a problem that you can interchange. And so for me, knowledgeable leaders aren't just leaders that know their facts, know their instructional leadership, know the different domains of how to teach their biology. That's important. That's really important. But there's a whole group of knowledge and theories that isn't about the what answer to give. It's how you go about the answer or informing how you go about the answer and understanding the problem that's in front of you rather than what the answer to the problem is. So for me, knowledgeable leaders isn't just the facts they know to answer the problem. It's giving them knowledge and ways of thinking about how to go about understanding comprehending the problem, the organization, the individuals within it. 
Right, thank you. It's been extremely fascinating chatting through that. I'm sure that listeners are going to go out and, and try and find out where they are in their, their adult development and figure out how they can get the, the get some disruptions so they can get to the individualist. We're going to change gears a, l- a little bit now, if that's okay with you, Neil, and we're going to, we're going to talk briefly about your role in, in teacher training. And I want to ask you how, how important you think it is to learn in multiple areas, but also tell us how hard this is to do. So... I think, I think the, I think when we start with teacher trainers, I mean the thing that always catches me at interview is how amazing these individuals are when they arrive. Right, they are incredible. I mean, I look at the nine that I've had the privilege of training this year at the University of Gloucestershire, and they, I remember just being blown away by all of them. And if I hadn't interviewed them directly, there was only a couple. I remember speaking to the lecturer who had just been completely blown away. We are so many, and as I said, it's the same this year with the cohort that's coming in, absolutely blown away. And consequently, we can forget that they are coming into something that they are totally new at, completely new. Okay, so they might have done school experience before, might have worked in a school before, might have been a TA before. No, teaching is, is new to them. Being a, and if, being a trainee teacher is completely new. We are dealing with someone who I don't I don't know why I shy away from the word novice, but it's true. It's not a, not a form of disrespect. It's respecting actually this is new, and then actually saying that teaching is really hard. And maybe I have an appreciation from this being an adult developmentalist and an adult developmental psychologist is that I look at the what teachers have to do in the classroom, and I just think, my word, this is incredibly difficult. This is difficult from the inherent task teachers have to do from an adult developmental level. You have to be a really well-sophisticated adult. Not everyone can do this at the stage that they're in, okay? So then I look at that. I look at the, the I recognize the fact that novice, I recognize the fact that this is a really, really hard skill, far harder than we give credit for. And then I go, well, that is so unfair to expect them to learn multiple things at once when it's an inherently hard thing to do. So let's pair it back. Let's start with what the basics of great teaching is. Being able to explain something that's inherently difficult in a very simple way under time pressure to multiple individuals. <laughs> I mean, that in itself, I mean, if you learn how to do that after nine months, you'll do it, you've, you, wow, and do that fluently. That's incredibly challenging. Then you add questioning and assessment. So I say, yes, the, I think we can spiral. We can build people up to be able to appreciate multiple views on teaching and learning. And, and we should do that. We absolutely should introduce that, but over time and do so slowly. Knowing that confidence, self, particularly self-efficacy, you know, the perspective of which we view ourselves as having, being able to have impact on those around us in a particular domain, is going to be absolutely critical to their development too. So I think very much the approach we've taken on the biology PGC at the University of Gloucestershire has been start with one chord and we build up the fluency in that chord and then we introduce a second chord and then a third and then a fourth and then we see how we can play them together and we look at different ways of learning that chord. I mean, I'm using a music example here, but in terms of teaching and learning, it's starting with the basics, which I think direct instruction summarizes pretty well. Um, 
it's not because of an ideological bend towards direct instruction. I just think that actually there's a lot of the core basics of teaching that are within the direct instruction approach that provide a really good fundamental basis for developing a teacher. And there's someone then who's a construct, you know, adult developmentalism is based in constructivism, actually introducing those ideas of constructivism and other approaches that are equally valid. But it's starting from an approach that you feel can give them the most opportunity to practice those core skills of teaching, being able to explain something, introduce practice, questioning, being able to stand at the front for five minutes and deliver. That you can then provide the basis for every other model. So I think for me, and when we were designing this, we said, well, how do we, if we're going to introduce our students or something, let's introduce them to a model that gives them enough of the core skills that they can apply to these other approaches when we introduce them in time. And that's why we started, you know, with direct and explicit instruction, we build their fluency in that, because then actually when it comes to learning about constructivism, or if it actually comes, learns about, you know, practical work, um, or self-directed projects, actually the inherent skills that they've learned in that one approach, they're in a better place to be learning from that wide multiplicity of different approaches and models because they've got core skills which they can then apply rather than trying to learn five things at once without developing fluency in any of them. So that's where I'd say it is about this beautiful thing of working in a university-led ITT program is we do have the space to, to really explore the multiplicity of different models in all sorts of ways starting with one approach and then dripping in other approaches. Not because we think that that's the most important and the only thing our training teachers should know, but because actually it exposes teachers to developing a core set of teaching skills, which allows them to then experiment with other methods with a secure base of good, solid teaching skill. So that's what I'd say. I'd say multiplicity is really important, knowing the breadth of pedagogies out there um, but starting from a position where they can develop core basic teaching skills explain something questioning practice which you we then prevent allows to facilitate them learning a, a broader range of things a lot faster than than just focusing on multiplicity to begin with Certainly, thank you. And I love what you said right at the beginning there about recognising the complexity of teaching. I love that you said that not everyone can do it. I, I really, I really appreciate that, and I'm sure the the listeners who who I, I assume are predominantly teachers would definitely appreciate that. And kind of brings me on to asking about educational research because education research is is quite prominent in schools today. So, how important do you think it is in schools, and how do we get it right? I think it's really important. I think. Oh, of course, I'm going to say that. That sounds so like oh, I think it's really important. Yeah, I think what we don't appreciate is how hard it is to bring research into a busy environment. I think we don't appreciate how hard it is for knowledge to move between schools and universities and research centres and policy. Um, Liz, Elizabeth Farley Ripple at the University of Delaware does a lot of work on this, and it is really both accessible but fascinating just to learn how difficult it is to get research into schools embedded into schools because schools are so context bound 
You know, you could have two schools 500 yards from each other and they'd be completely different. The demographic they're serving, the teacher demographic that's working within them, the leadership within them, the culture, the lot, the building, everything, 500 yards of two schools. And this is where, you know, having been a family support worker prior to teaching, I saw that, you know, work, literally driving from one school to the other and being exposed to a completely different environment, a completely different way of being expected to work with families. You know, the power dynamic between teachers and, and, and pupils and families is completely different. And this is what presents the real challenge to embedding research, is that schools are context-bound. Now, that should not mean, I think there's, there's some narratives say, well, we should just have it all completely localised then, you know, that schools generate their own knowledge. Well, no, there's still quite a few inherent commonalities in schools. You can say schools have common features but enjoy unique aspects to their institution. That's not a binary. It's not you know, um, it's not binary, it's it's a mixture of both. But to appreciate that, you need to have some pretty sophisticated, knowledgeable individuals around you that can appreciate that, no, solutions aren't just very often teaching problems or wicked problems. You can't just import a solution and apply it neatly and it works that way. That's not how any model of change really works, let alone... Um, pedagogy, let alone research, translation. So the first question I'd say, the hardest thing for schools is, are you ready to work in this way? You know, are, do you have the people, the structures, the tolerance for ambiguity, the tolerance for getting things wrong? Because just because research says do it doesn't mean it works for your setting. So you have to have the tolerance, both the emotive tolerance, I'd say, the tolerance of mind but also the tolerance within the institution for getting things wrong. Is it so high stakes? Actually, you get it wrong, that's it. Done. And let alone the tolerance of mind for accepting ambiguity will be an inherent part of the application of research. And then recognizing that that will generate information too. And that information, what do you do with that information? It isn't just application done. That, that provides information. Okay, what do you do with that information? So working in a way that embeds research into school and brings research as a critical aspect of a school is really difficult. I think it's not just the simple, it's not just and should not just be just someone collating research and then applying it to the school. That's a one-way model of, of knowledge transmission. That isn't research. Research is that there is this inherent relationship between the inaction of research and the creation of research in, and recognizing it requires sophisticated structures um, for both learning and embedding from research, tolerance of mind um, for ambiguity, tolerance within the organization and within individuals within that organization, within the leadership of individuals that just getting it wrong and it might go wrong and probably will go wrong. What do you learn from that? Um, some organizations are ready for that. Some people have those individuals, some people have those structures, some organizations are not, and you need to grow toward it. So I'd say the hardest thing about embedding research into schools and working with research in schools is actually you've got to prepare for it. You can't just turn it on like a tap because you've gone on the EEF website and downloaded the papers and that's what you're going to do. But it doesn't work that way. You know, for a start, if you do want to work that way, people can turn around to you and go, well, no, we don't want to do that. But the research says so. Yeah, but we don't agree, you know. So it assumes as well that kind of tradition, so I want to say traditional model, the assumed model of research onto school, that there is an individual agency and volition. 
there is. There's a lot of individual agency and volition. We just have to accept that on a basic level, a teacher can shut the door and the vast majority of the time you don't know what's going to happen inside it. And so, and that, and so this is the challenge of research in a, in a complex setting like the school. It needs complex structures, sophisticated individuals, well-trained individuals, the structures, the support, the tolerance, in order to begin to work in that way and recognize it's a way of working, not just an interventional approach. It's a way of working in a way of having a school organization being run. I want to say the word culture, but it's a way of a school running and operating rather than just an intervention. Certainly, so make- yes, it certainly does. So if schools do have the conditions right, what would you yeah. like to see them and teachers do more of in the future? I would like there to be a really close working relationship with university partners and knowledge transmission partners, whether that's the EEF or others. I'd like to see that the knowledge being generated by those schools, when coordinated with knowledge being generated from other schools, actually becomes not just, oh, it worked, but what does this then tell us about theory? I'd like to see it actually transcend across. It isn't just what works, but also, okay, if that worked, what does that tell us about theory? I'd like to see that kind of complete loop of of research and knowledge and theory come into play. Um, I suppose that's what I would like to see. I would like to see that there is a genuine dynamic, mutual dynamic between theory, research, practice that empowers teachers, recognizes they have a role, recognizes that researchers have a role, recognizing academics and theories has a role, that um, uh, knowledge mobilizers have a role, individual role, but ultimately working together to create not just an understanding of what works, but also how it works, and what does this mean for for theory, for understanding, for re- for theory, for for knowledge, and how schools operate, how teaching and learning operates. That's what I would like to see. Well, hopefully that more schools will get in touch with our universities after this and try and try and develop that that loop and that that relationship that, which would enable that. So that brings us to the end of the of the interview section, Neil. Before we move on to what I call my final three, and that's the three questions that I ask every guest. But before I do that, can you please share with the listeners where they can find out a little bit more about your research into adult ego development, where they can find out more about you, where they can engage with you and where they can carry on this conversation. Brilliant. So you can find me on Twitter at nmgilbride. That's at nmgilbride. You can go to my own personal website, which is neilgilbride.com. Um, and uh, that will have my institution's email address as well. So you can more than happy to drop me a line there or via, via Twitter. Brilliant. Well, hopefully some people will, will listen to this and go, I want to know a little bit more about that and, and get in touch with you. So when I want to the final three, as I mentioned, you and there's three questions where I just want you to, to tell me what you think. So the first one there is what book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career? Oh, okay. That's a good one. Um, 
for me, it was it was on becoming the effective teacher by Carl Rogers. Um, the reason for that was because when I came out of my NQT and I was teaching, um, I I'll be honest, I think I've said this to to others, but I left. I came into teaching, you know, very relationship focused. I'd worked the child line. I'd always worked on the pastoral element of it. And so I was developing teaching and learning understanding, you know, teaching and learning in the classroom. I'd done my MA in psychology and education. Um, so I was building on that. And I think I became so biased towards the teaching and learning, so much toward, forgot there was another element of it. And I know it gets, it's not a binary, like focusing on relationships or focusing on teaching and learning. Um, but I, I knew I was heading more toward the teaching and learning angle. And I got to a point about three years into my career, and I thought, I've forgotten how to build student relationships. As someone who'd worked for Childline and done quite a lot of volunteer hours and done a lot of pastoral work, I'd focused so much on teaching and learning that I forgot that the, the skills of developing relationships with students is one we constantly have to grow and develop. We can't let that stand still. That's not a trait. And maybe I thought I was. Maybe I biased myself thinking it was a trait. It's not. It's something we need to consistently grow and develop. And so reading this book on becoming the effective teacher, you think on the title, oh, well, about teaching and learning. No, it isn't about relationships. It's about Hugh, Carl Rogers' humanistic psychological approach, which is embed, embedded in all form, pretty much any form of therapy um, that teaches you and discusses how we need to be as teachers to develop those trusting bonds of relationships through compassion, honesty. Um, that, that really shook me and reminded me of my roots but also advanced those roots further so to help me to gain a balance between being a teaching and learning geek and loving my teaching and learning and my classroom practice but also making sure that I'm developing at the same rate my ability to work with students um, and keeping those in a balance that's why that was so influential on me right thank you my second question then is if you could just give one bit of advice to a teacher what would that be? Recognize that your job is far harder than you'll give credit for. And not just on a, oh, it's hard because it's ours. Yeah. It's hard because children can be demanding. Yes, absolutely. But the actual thinking that has to go into teaching, the actual cognitive tasks, from a fundamental level, as an adult developmental psychologist, I think is ridiculously difficult, so hard. And I don't think we give ourselves, ourselves as a profession, how hard that is. We say about the hours, we say about the working with children and families and all the relationships, and that is important. Yes, that is the emotive, that's really important. But the actual cognitive demand of learning to teach and then teaching is exceptionally difficult. We don't give ourselves enough credit for it. And that's what I want, I would say the advice to teachers for, bit, for me would be to actually give yourself a pat on the back if you're doing it all right. Because if you're doing it all right, you are mastering a heck of a lot of skills and you know capacity, cognitive capacities are really really challenging and really difficult to master that's what i'd say 
certainly that goes back to, to what I picked out what you said earlier not everyone can do it and it also relates back to a conversation I had with a previous guest Joe Facer who, who spoke quite well about teachers being brain athletes and that cognitive cognitive demand and I quite like, how, like that turn of phrase she had so my last question for you Neil is one that really fascinates me and I'm really interested to get the different different contributions from all the guests I've had is and it is what do you think most gets in the way of just great teaching in our classrooms oh to, to hate I hate to repeat myself but I think the greatest barrier is not recognizing just how difficult cognitive challenge teaching presents. I think that is the greatest barrier. I think we, we see it in terms of time. I think we see it in terms of aesthetic. I think we see it in terms of content, the time it takes, the people in the room. We don't actually recognize the structure that is required to teach and teach well. If we had a genuine, a real appreciation what it took to teach and teach well. I think we'd view issues of time and how much time we give teachers to prepare lessons and curricula. I think we would review how we view the importance of the student-teacher relationship. I think we'd re, 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 completely reconfigure how schools work and manage their talent. I think we'd reconfigure the importance of development and how that what that development needs to look like and balance between technical and academic training. I think for me, the greatest barrier was we focus so much on the content of the problems, what the problem is, and the aesthetic presentation of that problem, rather than the underlying structure of the problem, in which cases that teaching is incredibly challenging to do for an adult. It's an incredibly difficult job, which has multiple cognitive tasks in, that you need to be able to do at a high level and all at the same time. I think that is the greatest barrier, is we don't really fully appreciate nor have researched the full from a adult development or educational psychology perspective just how challenging teaching is and until we really get a good grasp of that i think the content of the problems will remain we will never give teachers enough time we'll never give them enough focus on the student teacher relationship we won't know how to we won't know what the key linchpins are for their development both as technical teachers but also as academics and thinkers that's why I think the greatest barrier is. Sorry, thank you, Neil. I love, I love your how you've how you've put into words there just how complex and demanding teaching is, and and that's just definitely appreciate appreciating all the the the, the wonderful work that teacher teachers do, and, and recognizing that that what we do really is exceptional so thank you for that and that just leaves me to, to thank you so so much for for your time today it's been an extremely fascinating chat and i'm sure listeners will get a lot out of it so thank you so so much neil pleasure absolute pleasure thank you so much for having me on thank you for listening to the becoming educated podcast until next time teach with joy